0: As I was thinking about our passage here today, in John chapter 13 in the upper room, you can turn there right now, John chapter 13, I was reminded of a time on a family vacation uh, that we went on several years ago when Adelaide was just really learning to walk. We were at uh, a house way out in the woods together, it was like an Airbnb situation with my family, uh, and so if you've been there before, you know the joys and the pains of living in one house together with all of your extended family, right? And so we were outside to get some fresh air. I imagine, uh, and and we were out in this yard in this house in the middle of the woods of kind of northwest Michigan, was right along a, a river. It was a pretty significant river, and it was narrow. Which, if you know much about rivers, uh, what that really meant is it was deep and it was swift. It had a really strong current to it. And as the adults, we could get in and right along the banks. You know, it was up to your, your waist, and you could try to find some crawfish. And, and that was really fun. The kids thought that was fascinating and terrifying, and we loved it. Well, of course, we had bought one of those little you know, mini mouse fishing poles to try to teach our daughter to do things I didn't know how to do, like fish. And she caught things like I caught things, which means she caught nothing at all. But she loved the experience. And and here we are in this yard right up on the riverbanks. She's standing right like I am over the edge of the river fishing. And all of a sudden, the bank gives way. And my little kid falls in. And I did not expect this to happen, so I'm sorry about this. But man, going back there was terrifying at that moment. And Ashton was the closest. And man, what a mama's heart. Because it's possible she could have like knelt down right there, right, and, like, grabbed her. The river was right there. She was still right there, but she was drifting away, and she was under the water, and she could have reached out and grabbed her, but, like, you might not be surprised to hear, Ash jumped right to the river, grabbed her daughter, and pulled her out. And it was terrifying. In the end, we were kind of laughing about it, because in the mix of it all, as we were retelling the story, and the emotions were kind of dying down, the stress and the, you know, whoo, fight-or-flight hormones were dying away, Ashton realized she had one less shoe than she had jumped into the river with. (laughs) The river had claimed its prize, right? Like, it was taking something. And we did not care about that shoe. But that moment, to me, is a picture that I'll carry with me for a long time, and I think it's a picture We'll discuss it in a moment, much of the way our Lord gave us an example to get down underneath one another and serve each other, lifting each other up, helping one another. May it be true of us that we follow his ways. We're in a series right now. We're calling the Upper Room Discourse because we are following in John chapters 13 through 17. The moment that Jesus pulled his disciples into a room together to share the Passover meal. Just hours before, 12 hours ahead of when he would be crucified. It's the Thursday of Passover week. And after an entire ministry where Jesus was continually saying, hey, my time has not yet come. They're not going to take me now because my time has not yet come. I'm not going to serve you or perform that miracle yet in that way because my time has not yet come. We see a turning point at the first verse of John chapter 13 where Jesus says, and where the passage says that Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John writes that having been defined by love, he continues in love. Out of his identity, Jesus chooses this moment to do perhaps the most poignant thing he did in his ministry to that point. It says in verse 4 that Jesus rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, wrapped it around his waist, And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Last week we saw in Jesus' exchange with Peter over this moment as he washed each of the disciples' feet that Jesus was sharing something, a picture of the agency he had in being our Redeemer. He was showcasing that he alone could make us clean. That towel wrapped around him that was taking the dirt as he washed their feet, he was going to be the redeemer and his followers would need to trust in him alone to allow him to be the way they could be made right with God. Which brings us to verse 12. Where Jesus points out a second impact that his act of washing feet was going to have. An impact he wanted more to know. We saw Jesus as Savior. Now we'll see Jesus as our example. We saw Jesus as Savior. Now we'll see Jesus as our example. So would you join me again in the upper room. Still laying around that table. Jesus has just washed their feet. Verse 12 says this. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Now, of course, Jesus is asking a rhetorical question because it's the stinking disciples. They don't have a clue. And before we laugh at them, and we can laugh at them, Let's just thank God for the revealing work He's done by sending the Holy Spirit to allow us to see and sense what He does, what His truth is, how we are, need to be convicted of how He's transforming us. Because apart from Him drawing us to Himself, we would never know what He meant. We would never understand this truth. And that's why our coworkers and our friends and our family members. Don't see it yet. Because our eyes are all naturally blinded, like his disciples. And we're all like Peter, saying, Jesus, don't wash my feet. And Jesus like, just give me a second. You'll understand later. He's like, no way. I'm not going to let you do this. And Jesus is like, I'm going to send the Spirit, and he'll be a helper. And helper is maybe the kindest way to say that, right? So Jesus says, do you understand what I've done to you? Verse 13, he, he explains it right away before Peter can make a fool of himself. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And before we even get any further, I just think there's maybe three things we'll see about Jesus right away as we read through this passage. I want to focus on Jesus, and then we'll focus on what we walk away with as we see who Jesus is and how he acts in this moment. So the first thing we need to see about Jesus is that he is our leader. I don't want to skip over that as if it's assumed and presumed and we all understand. It matters that we notice that he is leader. The leader. Jesus sets up his explanation here with a point that everyone ought to agree with. Jesus was the rabbi. He was the Lord. And he'll even share as an example in, the, in a minute. He's not only the Lord, he's, he's the master. He's the one who sends. and As such, Jesus ought to have the seat of honor at this table. He ought to have the best jobs and the best food and the best perks and the service of all those who are underneath him. We all inherently get that, which is why many of us want to be able to have those positions. You want that job because it comes with all the good stuff. You want other people to see you that way because you love the way it makes you feel when you walk into the room. And so when Jesus points out that he is the leader, he says, you're right to call me this. You're right to understand that's who I am. And it's like a comical understatement here. It's like, you call me rabbi and lord, and you're right. I'm at the very least that, is what, is what I see behind what Jesus is saying here. The truthful starting point. In reality, Jesus is much more than just the teacher. He's more than just a lord in any kind of worldly understanding of that term. He is majesty. He is supremacy. He's the divine son of God in human frame. He's not just the leader of this pack of guys in an upper room. He's the creator and sustainer of time itself. So yes, you're right to call me rabbi, teacher, lord, leader. Anytime else in human history, if anyone else would hold any of the authority Jesus had, we would know the drill to happen next at this dinner table. They would rule and subvert others, they'd control, they'd command, they'd domineer over people, they'd manipulate things to their benefit. And I'm afraid that we've heard about what Jesus does next so many times. We miss the marvel of someone who is who Jesus was and yet did what Jesus did. Not Jesus, but he does next what he had just done was world-changing. What he was going to do even further than washing their feet on the next day would bring life itself. So verse 14, he explains it. He says, you're right to understand that I am the leader. And if then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet for if i have given you for i have given you an example that you also should do as i have done to you truly truly i say to you a servant is not greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him jesus points out the other fact about himself that he's not only the leader he's also servant hearted jesus is servant hearted He washed their feet, he served humbly. He was the Lord, the teacher, and yet he was still humble, willing to put himself under the perceived status that he could have had in order to care for his followers. And not just washing their feet. Of course, he started there, but then he would endure betrayal and injustice and torture and his death. This servant-heartedness is defined by Jesus. He served humbly. Jesus didn't just do humble stuff in order to make the news cycle, hoping people would notice and like him better because of what he did. He was, as an attitude, not just as an action, he was servant-hearted. We read some of the passages that tell us about that today as we worship. Mark chapter 10 says it this way. Jesus taught his disciples, you know that those who were considered rulers over the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, for even creator of the universe, for even God in flesh came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The true hearted, the true servant-heartedness of Jesus shone through his life. Not only has he actively lived and served, but even, I think perhaps in an interesting way, in the ways he's accepted service over his ministry. He accepted service gratefully in a way that illustrated he was servant-hearted. He cared about serving others more than being somebody himself. When others would have refused the attention and chatter of children around them in their culture, servant-hearted Jesus welcomed them because he cared for them. When lepers approached him, and others would have run away and told them to sequester themselves, because they they couldn't be around someone that sick, servant-hearted Jesus did not recoil, allowed them proximity and time in his presence. Then, just six days ago, from this moment, On the way into the city of Jerusalem, in the town of Bethany, where just a handful of weeks, six, seven weeks before, Jesus had brought Lazarus back to life, Jesus has dinner again with, what do we call him now? Six-week-year-old baby Lazarus, who's an adult. He's eating dinner, laying down around a, a different table, when Mary comes into the room and starts to wash Jesus' feet. But this time, instead of water, she uses the most expensive perfume she has. She wipes it, not with a towel, but her hair. She serves Jesus. And everyone else, perhaps even specifically some of his disciples, were astonished and thought this was excessive and we should push back on this. But not servant-hearted Jesus. He had nothing to prove. He had no sense of entitlement. He was aware of her worship and was able to accept service gratefully. And Jesus himself gives us the application here. But I want to hold off on applying it yet till we see something else that's true about Jesus here. All the way down in verse 20, let's skip ahead. Jesus says something to wrap up his application. He says, do you know I've done this to you? And he starts to say, I am Lord. You're right to understand that. I have been an example. I am servant-hearted. And he gives them one last thing. Truly, truly, verse 20. I say to you, whoever receives the one I send. I just want to stop right there. Whoever receives the one I send. So it's like Jesus is saying, A whole reason I'm modeling servant-heartedness here, the reason I'm putting on display that I am servant-hearted is because I am going to send you somewhere. Jesus is sending his followers and us as his followers into the world. That's something he was doing here. He was giving them that tip. I will be sending you. His illustration here in verse 16 was more than just a teaching tool. When he said, I say to you, a servant isn't greater than his master. That's true of our relationship with Jesus. We're his servants. He's our master. We're not greater than him, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus is, is communicating something here. I'm going to be sending you. I am sending you. You are my messengers. His servants were going to be his messengers on his mission. Jesus was sending his disciples out, minus Judas, as his servant-hearted ambassadors. It mattered to Jesus that his ambassadors were going to look like him. So this is what we see about Jesus. He, he was the leader. He was servant-hearted. and He was sending others. And he asked his disciples to follow his example of care humble service. So that's, that's the takeaway today. Folks, there are some sermons that are hard to write, and there are some sermons that Jesus speaks for us. He says, follow my example. We must follow the servant-hearted example of Jesus. That's the idea. And it's fascinating to me. Jesus served And then he instructed his disciples not to serve him back directly. He didn't say, if then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you ought also to wash your Lord and master's feet. As if they could offer him anything in the first place, I get it. But admittedly, it's easier for us to be okay with that idea. Hey, you served me now. And you're my leader, so of course, now I'll serve you directly. That's something I can get behind. That's a closed loop. That's reciprocity, right? It's reciprocal. I feel good about what I've done because I'm no longer in your debt because we're scratching each other's backs here. Jesus served his followers and then said to his followers, now serve each other. That's humility. I've served you, now you serve each other. Maybe we need to get back to the heart of what servant-hearted really means. I'll submit this definition to you, and I'm going to change it live in person. Maybe we could understand servant-heartedness as this. It's a humble orientation of action for the benefit of others without an obvious benefit to you in return. And as I'm saying this to you, I'm thinking, that's confusing. And I I may not be communicating what I think the passage is trying to say. So let's say it this way. It's not just a humble orientation of action. Maybe it's better for us to say it this way. It's humility in action. Humility in action for the benefit of others without an obvious benefit to you in return. I think that's what Jesus was showing, that he had a humble heart, and that heart was in action for the benefit of others without an obvious benefit to him in return, and he asked them to put that idea into their hearts and lives as well. Humility in action for the benefit of others without an obvious benefit for you in return. So you think ultimately here, Jesus was asking his followers to copy his heart, not his activity. Ultimately, he was asking his followers to copy his heart for others, not only his activity that he had just performed. He says in verse 15, I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And we shouldn't live off of this kind of a thought process, but I think it is important, just as I have done, not just what I have done. In this moment, in its ultimate form, Jesus isn't instituting a third ordinance for the church to practice corporately together. Though it would be beneficial to our hygiene, perhaps, to institute foot washings more often. Jesus is calling for an inner humility, In action, not necessarily only a gathered right to practice together. Now, it's a phenomenal starting point. I've done foot washings with others. It's a great thing to do, but it's not what Jesus called us ultimately to put to work. Though it would have been simpler that way. Ah, yes, the upper room, servant-hardiness example, washing of feet, We did that two Sundays ago. I'm good for another year, right? It's a good thing we don't have to do that more often. It was a little awkward. No, Jesus wants his followers to see his humble orientation of heart for anyone and everyone, friend and foe. Perhaps seated right next to Jesus, and put that into action. That's the example for us to follow over and over and over and over and over again at all times and in every situation, a servant-hearted humility in action. We see this in Jesus better than anyone. We see it in the upper room, in the foot washing. We see it in his incarnation coming to earth. We see it on the cross, his life for our own, and we are to have that same heart set, the same mindset, the same action set. Daniel referenced Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And having been found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. When Jesus says, follow my example, he's saying what Paul would say, have my mind yourself and it's yours in Christ already Paul tells us so the true issue for for the Christian is not just what the law and the prophets might be summed up to say how would I like them to treat me do the others as I would have them do to me that that's a very much law and prophets mindset which is good and effective and beautiful and and godly, but Jesus came to fulfill the law of the prophets, and he leveled it up through the cross and his incarnation, pictured in this upper room moment, where it's not just how would I like them to treat me? Okay, I'll do the same thing in return. Instead, it's how has Jesus treated me? Okay, that's how I should treat others. How has Jesus treated me? That's how I must behave towards everyone else. That's an example to follow. We must follow the servant hearted example of Jesus. Maybe let's break it down in two straightforward ways. First, live to serve humbly. That's how we follow that example. Second, receive service gratefully. Live to serve humbly, right? That, that's just, you're, you're going above going the distance, you're going above and beyond that kind of mindset that says, hey, if you're forced to go one mile by your enemies carrying their armor, Jesus would say, offer to go the second mile. Go above and beyond. That's what servant-heartedness looks like. It comes at a cost to yourself. It, it may cost a whole lot of you. Not only your reputation or your dignity of your pride of how you think you ought to be, but it might cost resources and and time and passion and things you could be doing in any other way. I mean, it's football season now, for crying out loud, right? Jesus knew that, right? (laughs) servant hardiness gets a break on Saturdays and Sundays in the fall. It comes at a cost. And it doesn't depend on the status or the standings of the one we serve. It's not as if it was like, yeah, I could serve that guy. That family, I like them. I should do something for them. No, no, it's that heart set for all. Receiving service gratefully is next. And I say this because I'm encouraged that our church family, I believe, has learned a whole lot from Jesus' example of serving others. It was easy to find a family we could hear from about what motivated them to serve at Bethel HP. Y'all do that. Real well. Don't miss that Jesus has a high bar. Let's keep growing. But we do that well. But sometimes when we do that well, what we can end up doing is closing the back door. We're avoiding the other side of that. But To be servant-hearted also means we're open to service. It means humility, understanding that you have needs and that others get to join you in those needs. And it's not to your loss, it's to God's glory. It means that sometimes you, you need to receive service that costs you nothing, that you can't pay back, that you can't get even with, just like the grace Jesus provides. And it changes, maybe even specifically in our church family, the way we view each other. When We're able to be servant-hearted enough to receive service gratefully. The people that serve us within our church family, perhaps, as the starting point, of course, we ought to especially do it in the family of God and then extend it out to the world around us. As we see our brothers and sisters in Christ as people who serve us in ways that we're able to receive, they stop being, you know, people in the auditorium, an audience. They start becoming Brothers and sisters, siblings that are cherished and that are seen and welcomed and loved. One of the reasons it's hard to receive service gratefully and give service humbly is because servant-heartedness is a pride killer. We are proud people. Servant-heartedness is a pride killer. The pride of believing you're too important or busy or too whatever it is for you, in order to serve. The pride of believing you're too sufficient and too complete in order to receive service. We must follow the servant-hearted example of Jesus, and we must. Because in verse 17, Jesus said, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Go and do likewise. Jesus doesn't just want his disciples to know something or even to agree with him about something. He wants them to do something, to follow his example. Bethel Church, may we be a church with worn Bibles and worn hands. May we have journals full of messy prayers and kitchen sinks, filled with messy dishes that we've been feeding other people with. May we have true doctrine, but also unpretentious compassion for others. Know it and do it. It's a sobering requirement. What we do in serving others, feeding or helping or washing or sheltering or caring or receiving or child ministering or Bible study leading or small group hosting. What we do in serving others, we do to Jesus. Jesus would say in Matthew 25, Say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Because service like Jesus, servant-hearted, is service to Jesus. What's the Result. What would happen in northwest Indiana if Bethel Church, Hobart, Portage were to follow the servant-hearted example of Jesus? Well, when we're servant-hearted, first we experience the good life. We experience the good life. Jesus said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The good life belongs to those who are acting in servant-hearted humility. That is the good life happy are you who are freed from the pride of needing to be something, needing to accomplish something, hoping to be noteworthy in an area. When your identity and fulfillment comes from who you are in Jesus, man, you're never more like him when you're servant-hearted like him. That's the good life. Servant-heartedness isn't a weakness, it's not a hustle, it's not a chore to do, it's rooted in Jesus. It comes to knowing who you are in him, the happiness of a victory that's already secured, a grace that's already received and secured forever, a helper who's gentle and with us forever, an example in Jesus that he remakes us in Christ to be able to be. That's the good life. We are servant-hearted. When we're servant-hearted, we know the good life. In Christ, we're freed from the cycles of needing a purpose in life, of needing payback, of needing accomplishment. We're brought into an economy of grace. A world where I didn't get what I deserve. You know what that means? I can give what others don't deserve and be happy about it. I can be radically generous. I can be illogically helpful. When we're servant-hearted, we experience the good life. And Another result is the region knows and sees Jesus. Others see and receive Jesus. He told us as he was sending us in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus is saying this is how evangelism works. You go as servant-hearted people following my example. And when other people see your servant-heartedness, they are confused. They are weirded out. The Holy Spirit uses that and draws them to the faith he's awakening them to. And then the gospel enters their story and they trust in me. Because they saw me when they saw you. Jesus wanted his ambassadors to act like him so that the world could see him. As we're servant hearted, people see Jesus. So I should invite the band up here to worship him. And as I do, you may have noticed I skipped a few verses and you shouldn't let me do that. Verse 18, Jesus interrupts his line of thought to remind his disciples about something. He says, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know who I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, and I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He." Jesus wants his disciples to know he is aware that he's gonna be betrayed. He knows it and he quotes Psalm 41.9 and says, This has been fulfilled. Psalm 41.9 has been fulfilled here today in this upper room. I'm using this old symbol of Passover. I'm initiating, initiating a new covenant. We're gonna call the Lord's Supper, which we'll observe right here in this room in this moment. And as we're sharing this meal together, someone who's eating this bread with me is gonna raise their heel against me. They're gonna kick me when I'm vulnerable already, when I'm already on the ground. They're gonna betray me. We'll talk more about Judas next week. But that's enough to know here that Jesus wants his disciples to keep hearing, I'm sovereign. I'm not surprised by what's gonna surprise you. My plan isn't being wrecked, it's being fulfilled. In fact, if the disciples had known their scriptures better, they may have had the hope that Jesus got to have in this moment. Because in Psalm 41.8, it was predicted Jesus wouldn't only be betrayed, but that he would have victory over death. It says this, A deadly thing is poured on him, and he will not rise from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you... O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I might repay them. By this I know that you delighted in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. You have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Bless the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Jesus, eternally the Son of God, present when the psalmist David was inspired to write that, knew that his enemies heal, his disciples heal, Judas heal, would be raised to crush him. And yet servant-hearted Jesus washed that heal that night. That